Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Protests and marches in the streets. A rising generation of activists. and an embattled president who's just left the White House. Good morning, this is today in Washington, Friday, August 9th. The nation awaits the swearing in at noon Eastern time of our 38th president, Gerald Ford, and the departure from political life of Richard M. Nixon. That's right, I'm not talking about today, but actually that was where the country stood in the 1970s. Hi everyone, I'm CNN political director David Chalian. Welcome to Politically Sound. The 1970s was a decade of change, and like today, featured pitched battles in the culture wars, whether the combatant was President Nixon. I would be untrue to my oath of office if I allowed the policy of this nation to be dictated by the minority who hold that point of view and who try to impose it on the nation by mounting demonstrations in the street. Or former President Trump. Our shared values are under assault like never before. Extreme left-wing radicals, both inside and outside government, are determined to shred our Constitution and eradicate the beliefs we all cherish. In those similarities are lessons to be learned, how culture and politics intersect and diverge, and what that means for the future of the country. Now, I'm not exactly what you'd call a pop culture expert, I'll be the first to admit that. In fact, one colleague of mine started writing and distributing an occasional David Chalian Pop Culture Notes email to make sure I was kept abreast of major items in pop culture that I had no clue about. But as a young kid in the 1970s, I was a little more keyed into pop culture than I am today. And by the 1970s, you see just an utter transformation. Uh, All in the Family goes on the air. Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, all of them putting a very searching and probing light on America. Luckily, we have Ron Brownstein. He's joining us today to act as our guide. He's a CNN senior political analyst and the author of a new book on culture and politics in the 1970s. It's called Rock Me on the Water, 1974. The year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. He's going to take us back in time to explain the shifts we saw in that pivotal decade and what they mean for today's culture wars. So it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. Ron, obviously a lot of people know you as the phenomenal political analyst and reporter that you are. You're always crunching the data, looking for the best insights. So I just want to start with sort of an orientation here for our listeners. What compelled you to write a book about pop culture in L.A. in the 70s? I've always been interested in the relationship between culture 
and politics, how they intersect, how they interact, how they play off each other, how they phase, how they, they often seem to evolve in different, uh, at different speeds. But as I got deeper into the research, I think what really drew me to this story was this was not only a kind of a, a, a tremendous creative upsurge, this was a genuine hinge point in America's social, cultural, and even political history. Because if you look at the great pop culture that was produced in the early 70s, primarily in LA, literally within blocks of each other in music, movies, and television, this was the moment when the 60s critique of American life, when the 60s reassessment of basic cultural mores and the way we live was hammered, cemented into popular culture, never to be dislodged. And that was the big story that I ultimately felt compelled to tell. When you talk about the 60s critique on American society, did Hollywood lead the way in that critique in American society? Not at all. I mean, Hollywood really followed, uh, but ultimately, Hollywood was the bridge. What I say in the, in the book is that the movie and television industries in particular were the bridge between ideas that seemed insurrectionary when they first developed in the 60s and the mass American audience. Those insurrectionary ideas Ron's talking about are things like civil rights, equal pay, and the sexual revolution that burst onto the scene in the 1960s but weren't embraced right away by popular culture. In the 1960s, as I say, Walter Cronkite would spend half an hour showing Americans all of the fissures opening in their society. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. And then CBS and the other networks would spend the next three and a half hours trying to erase it from their minds. How could a bunch of hillbillies possibly buy a mansion like this? Let's take them back to their home and see how this whole thing started. We got the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and Green Acres. The closest we got to Vietnam was McHale's Navy and Gomer Pyle. So, as Ron explains, entering the 1970s, the media were still aimed at the conservative ideals of the World War II generation. But as the 70s progressed, the aspect of traditional, conservative, rural American culture was phased out in favor of the liberal ideas of the 60s, even though there was backlash, like this song by Roy Clark protesting the network cancellation of shows like Hee Haw and Lawrence Welk. We're going through a music revolution. This cultural shift, the growing split between rural and urban Americans, was also seen in politics, and as Ron explained, totally realigned the party system into what we're familiar with today. You could draw a line somewhere in the income ladder, and most people above it reliably voted Republican, and most people below it reliably voted Democratic. But really, since the 60s, starting with the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Act, but extending into the 70s with issues of crime, gun control, gay rights, abortion, uh, we've seen the axis of American politics fundamentally change. And I really believe that process which took decades to unfold, was triggered by all of the cultural earthquakes of the 1960s. That's what broke the old alignment in that the kind of voters who, you know, tend to like the way the country is changing tend to be metro voters. And the kind of voters who tend to dislike the way the country is changing tend to be non-metro voters. So it is almost as if the parties are representing two different Americas, not only demographically, but geographically, uh, in a way that makes it even harder than it was before for them to come together and agree on things. 
That was starting to become very clear in the 1970s. Even as culture became more progressive, Richard Nixon was re-elected in a landslide in 1972. So what does it mean when the culture goes one way and the politics another when it comes to the culture wars? This was the moment when the culture war was won. But there are no permanent victories, and you continue to fight from new baselines. I mean, the the way I look at it is that there, you know, as you know, I believe the fundamental dividing line in American politics is between those who welcome the way the country is changing demographically, culturally, socially, and economically, and those who fear it. And that kind of divide between cultural and social change and the backlash to it really is a constant through American history. And the way I look at it is that um, basically we, we have a fight, we change, we establish a new baseline, and then we have a new fight from that new baseline. Um, and that really is the process that has gone on uh, for forever. Certainly we can see it in the last few decades, for example, when conservatives fought gay marriage in the 2000s, and now they have largely ceded that argument, and now they're fighting transgender rights. But the changes in the way we think about the way we live that were brought on by the 60s, which, you know, Ronald Reagan couldn't stop that. George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush couldn't stop that. The cultural change rolls on whatever the status of kind of the political uh, tug of war over those cultural changes. But just because the culture war was won, according to Ron, doesn't mean that it became completely inclusive. In many ways, that's a battle still being fought today in culture and in society. So I asked Ron about what changes we saw in the 70s when it comes to diversity in popular culture and what it can tell us about today. I think the speed of change is always rather slow. You know, Norman Lear put, you know, the Jeffersons and Good Times on the air, and he was picketed by black screenwriters who were frustrated that, you know, these these programs were completely run, are almost completely run by, by white men. And, you know, here we are 50 years later, And you can say it's gone further, but it's still not, you know, remotely proportional to what it should be. Like Ron said, shows like The Jeffersons and Good Times cracked the door open for African-Americans, but they were still written mostly by white writers, relying more on catchphrases and didn't present the true depth of the black experience. Hello. (laughs) Aren't you glad you let your fingers do the walking because you got kids and dynamite doing the talking? However, culture today has progressed and expanded those views, adding nuance to the black experience that the black exploitation films of the 70s, often brutal slashers and racy scenes, as well as the sitcoms at the time, didn't capture. Take, for example, this scene from ABC's hit show Blackish. In the scene, the father, Andre, finds out his son, Junior, is a Republican and shares the news with the rest of the family. Junior is a Republican. Well, that's fine. What? He wants to be a publican, a British tavern owner. Noble profession. No, mama, a Republican. What's that you say? Uh, You say re, as in Republican? Uh Uh-huh. No, it can't be a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, that clip also highlights those political divides that are so entrenched in America and the way pop culture treats them. Up next, we'll talk about how those divisions were stoked in the 1970s and how the culture responded. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. While cultural issues have dominated the conversation among conservatives today, President Biden's election and his push now as president for widely popular economic measures illustrates to Ron that fighting the culture wars isn't always the best long-term electoral strategy. At any given point, given that the electorate is older than the society, the winning position might be backlash against the change. The culture is changing, and there is a share of the electorate that can be mobilized in fear of that. And that's what Nixon did, that's what Reagan did, and Trump more explicitly than anybody in terms of the racial dimension of it. The similarities between two of those presidents, Nixon and Trump, was one of the things I found most fascinating about Ron's book. So I wanted to know more about how culture and politics were in conversation with each other in the 1970s, especially how much of the culture shifts was in response to the president. And for Ron, the best way to illustrate that connection is the iconic sitcom All in the Family. Mr. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. G-R-O-S-L-R-E-D-R-E-D. G-R-O-S-L-R-E-D-R-E-D. All in the Family was one of the first shows that pushed the boundary of the kind of political conflict that could be seen on TV. It featured the iconic, bigoted, Nixon-supporting character Archie Bunker, often arguing with his hippie, liberal son-in-law. I thought the central plot line of All in the Family across its many seasons was the terms of surrender by the older generation to the new cultural mores demanded by the younger generation. I mean, that's what the story fundamentally was, was Archie and Archie as the stand-in for Nixon's silent majority being forced to accept a world in which one of his friends could be gay or his neighbor could be black or, you know, there were, there were women uh, who were asserting authority in the workplace. Uh, it, was, it was fundamentally his terms of surrender, even uh, at a point when Nixon won 49 states. You know, Archie felt his America slipping away. I demand to know the contents of that letter. And I say it's between Nixon and me. President Nixon. What's wrong with playing Nixon? Look in the paper. They do it all the time. Nixon this, Nixon that. That's their business, but in this house we show the proper respect. You don't like President Nixon, you call him Mr. Nixon. But President Nixon wasn't a fan of the show's depiction of his silent majority, a term popularized by Nixon to describe his conservative base who lived in a country apart from the activist and hippie culture of the 60s. You can even hear him ranting about it on his secretly recorded White House tapes. 
But for example, the uh, arch is sitting here in sloppy clothes, and here's his hippie son-in-law who's married to a screwball-looking daughter. For as long as they could, the studios and especially the television networks, at that point there are only three networks, they had to have a mass audience to stay on the air. They were aiming their programming, you know, primarily at Nixon's silent majority. And it really was the economic imperative to speak to this enormous youth audience that was developing that forced them to, to uh, open the doors to these new kinds of ideas. And once they did, there really was no looking back. Of course, you can't mention Nixon without the cultural impact of Watergate and his resignation in 1974. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. It created an overarching culture of mistrust in the system, a key component of this cultural shift that would carry on until today. For Ron, that was best summed up by the iconic film Chinatown. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It's essentially the story of how L.A. stole the water to become a giant metropolitan city. But, you know, the, the real message of the movie was you don't know as much as you think you do. J.J., Jack Nicholson's character, thinks he understands what's going on. He doesn't, and he causes great tragedy through his arrogance and ignorance. Um, and that was, in many ways, America in the early 1970s, after Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, after Watergate. When Chinatown came out, one reviewer described it as Watergate with real water. But Nixon's demise was hardly the end of conservative politicians emphasizing that their followers don't see themselves in popular culture and trying to gain an edge through a cultural fight. Former President Trump did more than echo Nixon in his two campaigns. There's a great hidden majority. I call it a hidden, you can call it a silent majority, but it's not really silent. So let me fast forward you for just a moment, 47 years into the future from your book. And we hear a lot, and it's a term I think that gets misappropriated all the time, but we hear a lot about cancel culture right now. And I wonder, is that, like, is that what the Archie Bunkers, the real world Archie Bunkers of 1974 were experiencing? This sense of we're being canceled by this, uh, you know, new rising left of the country? Do you think today's debate about cancel culture fits into what occurred back in this time that you explored? I think there are some similarities and some differences. Obviously, the similarity is that people like Archie and literally Archie in the show uh, felt new criticism for saying things that they had always felt comfortable to say that were derogatory toward other groups. There are many episodes where Mike or Gloria, the kid, says, Archie, you can't say that. You ain't got a black president, Jefferson, because God ain't ready for that yet. <laughs> Wait a second. What? To me, like, Donald Trump captured the essence of, the, of his entire political project in one sentence when he went down to Georgia, and he said, this is our country, and they are trying to take it away through rigging and stealing and, uh, you know, election fraud. That is the essence of the Nixon message uh, in many ways, and it is even more the purified essence of the Trump message. And just like the Nixon era shares a lot of similarities with the Trump era, the cultural shifts Ron explores in the book can tell us a lot about what our culture may look like in the years to come. 
the cultural and demographic change will proceed. And if you look at the pop culture of the early 1970s uh, in movies, music, television, um, I think it was a better predictor of how we were going to be living in 10 or 15 years than the election returns from 1972. And I think in the same way, if you look at kind of the, the vision of America that is advancing in the pop culture that rivets younger generations, that tells you what the society is going to be like in 10 years. It doesn't mean the left is always going to win elections any more than they did in the 80s, but it does mean that the changes that Trump and politicians of his kind of mindset are promising to stop are not going to stop. Um, and we are going to be a more inclusive society. We are going to be a more diverse society. Um, and those are going to be mainstream values in the same way that suspicion of authority and greater autonomy for women became mainstream values in the early 1970s. Uh, look, you really don't expect Lou to give you a raise, do you, Mayor? I mean, you know, he's going to talk you out of it just like he does everything else. Oh, no, not this time, Marie. I spent all weekend rehearsing just what I'm going to say to him. There is no way in the world he can turn me down. Oh, yeah? Ron says that shows like the Mary Tyler Moore show helped push that social change back in the 70s. And today, there's more diversity and inclusion in almost all aspects of media. It's a major criticism of today's culture from conservatives, that politics and the left agenda have made their way into every aspect of everyday life, from award shows to Super Bowl commercials. There's a Coke for he. And she. And her. And me. And them. There's a different Coke for all of us. And with today's corporations, it goes the other way as well. As Republican lawmakers across the country are rolling out legislation to restrict voting rights, hundreds of corporations, from Major League Baseball to Coca-Cola, are challenging these states by hitting them where it hurts, the wallet. But conservatives are riled up about it, as Georgia Governor Brian Kemp laid out. Georgians and all Americans should know what this decision means. It means cancel culture and partisan activists are coming for your business. Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, and Delta may be scared of Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, and the left, but I am not, and we are not at all. So I asked Rom what he learned from studying this shift in the entertainment industry in the 70s can tell us about why corporations are changing with pop culture today. Pop culture is kind of progressing in pace with step-by-step step with the attitudes of the younger generations who are in a familiar position like the 70s, where they are able to change culture before they change politics. You know, millennials and Generation Z do not yet have the leverage to be the dominant force in American politics. They are the dominant market for popular culture uh, in America. And it, it, that's the kind of process that I see in which the culture feels the need to respond to the emerging, to the values of the emerging generations before the political system does, because they are a so much bigger share of the pie. Regardless of whether the, the forces of what I call transformation or restoration have the upper hand electorally at any given point, the direction of the society itself, I think, is unmistakable and irreversible toward greater acceptance, not only acceptance, but celebration of difference and inclusion. And I think these companies are a straw in that wind. But Ron made clear that the time when younger generations can exert their political as well as economic will is coming very soon. In 2024, for the first time, Generation Z and the millennials, young people born after 1981, 
they will be a bigger share of the electorate for the first time than people born before 1964, the baby boom and the silent generation. And the people born before 1964 are 80% white, and the people born after 1981 are approaching 50% non-white. In fact, the generation that starts in 2014, whatever we're gonna call them, will be the first generation in American history that is majority kids of color. I have a final question before we let you go, and I want you to wear both sort of your uh, pop cultural historian hat and your political analyst hat at the same time here. But what, what do you think is the biggest political lesson you see for today from this single year in American culture? Well, I do think that the biggest lesson is that while you can win elections by mobilizing those who fear the future, you can't actually stop the future. I think that is the biggest lesson of the early 1970s and today, that just as Nixon and Reagan mobilized voters who didn't like the way the country was changing and won elections that way, but they couldn't stop the country from changing. Um, they couldn't stop the attitudes about marriage and, and premarital sex and the role of women and authority from spreading and deepening and taking root in American society. And in the same way, I think Trump has shown that you can mobilize a lot of voters around the promise to stop the change that they feel are dislodging them from a preeminent position in America as they define it. So, you know, there's an audience and you can win elections even with that audience. But I don't think you can stop the change. And the pop culture often is the canary in the coal mine that tells you where that change is going. Ron Brownstein, as somebody who was born in 1973, I just want to thank you because you've given me now a time capsule for my arrival on Earth that I will forever cherish. The book is called Rock Me on the Water. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate you being here. David, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Politically Sound. Thanks so much for listening. If you could please take a few minutes to give us a rating and a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're listening for the first time, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get our latest episode each week delivered right to you. Politically Sound is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Emmanuel Johnson and Will Cadigan. Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Francisco Monroy is our engineer. And David Toledo is the team's production assistant. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. We'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.